Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of poisoning and murder that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. From the outside looking in, Audrey Marie Hilly was the perfect woman. She was warm, she was beautiful, and she knew how to wield her feminine charms to command a room. But underneath that appealing exterior, Marie was a bit of a puzzle. Her motivations were ever-changing, and her actions were cunning, ruthless, and downright bizarre. She's someone who's just hard to work out. But as far as we can tell, here's what it all boiled down to. Marie wanted more from her life. In her mind, there was no such thing as too much love, attention, or money. And to get what she wanted, Marie assumed the role of puppeteer, manipulating the lives of her loved ones and watching them dance. But when things didn't work out the way she wanted, Marie didn't stop to untangle her knots. She just took her scissors and started cutting the puppet's strings. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're following the story of Audrey Marie Hilly, an obsessive and controlling woman who poisoned at least two family members with arsenic. She was also rumored to have dabbled in a few other devious crimes along the way. Next week, we'll learn how Marie was caught. Then we'll follow her as she commits not one, but two daring escapes from the authorities. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. To Lucille and Huey Fraser of Anniston, Alabama, their daughter, Audrey Marie, was nothing short of a miracle. 
They'd had trouble getting pregnant, and after one stillbirth, Marie arrived in 1933. The working-class couple were delighted and determined to give their little one the best of everything. To Lucille, that meant buying Marie all the prettiest clothes and toys. Of course, all these extra expenses added up. But when it came to Lucille's spending, Huey looked the other way. He was willing to let a lot slide to keep both his wife and daughter happy. In other words, both her parents were overly permissive. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Given what we know about their parenting styles, Lucille and Huey were likely what developmental psychologist Diana Baumrind calls permissive parents. Basically, that means they parented with a high level of acceptance, but a low level of control or demand. Instead of laying down any rules or boundaries, they gave Marie free reign to do whatever she wanted. It's possible they were afraid that any sort of pushback or discipline could sour their relationship. Unfortunately, they ended up with another problem instead. As Marie grew up, she saw her parents more like friends than authority figures. Because of that, she became overly demanding and self-involved. She also developed an inflated sense of her own importance. And the issues didn't stop at the front door. Marie expected the same treatment when she was out with her friends and other family members. And surprisingly, she got it. She often tagged along with her older cousins, who bowed to her every whim. Whether she was demanding shoulder rides or forcing the group to listen to her made-up, exaggerated stories, Marie always seemed to call the shots. But in 1947, when Marie was 14, her position seemed under threat. When she started her freshman year at Anniston High School, Marie likely assumed she'd keep her Queen Bee status and command the hallways. Instead, another classmate, Rachel Knight, stole the show. She was prettier, funnier, and much more popular than Marie. Needless to say, it was a shock. For the first time, Marie wasn't the center of attention, Rachel was. And because Marie couldn't outshine Rachel, she decided to become her, or rather copy everything she did. So Marie enlisted in all the same clubs and even started dressing like Rachel. And while we're not too sure if this boosted her reputation amongst her female classmates, it certainly attracted plenty of interest from the boys. It didn't take long before one of them made his move. That same year, 18-year-old senior Frank Hilly asked 14-year-old Marie out on a date. Marie was elated. This was exactly the type of thing she wanted to happen. She was a freshman talking to an older, sophisticated senior. Of course, Marie said yes to the date, and the two went out that weekend. Before long, they were going steady and dated for the rest of the school year until Frank graduated. After that, he joined the Navy and was eventually shipped out to Guam. Despite the distance, the two kept the spark alive. In fact, by 1950, their relationship was stronger than ever. When the 21-year-old came back on leave to attend a wedding, he took 17-year-old Marie as his date. Although she was still only a senior in high school, Frank knew he wanted a happily ever after with her. Marie felt the same way. So just a week later, the two exchanged their own vows. 
After their impromptu wedding and a Californian honeymoon, their life as newlyweds began. At some point, Frank returned to his naval posting and Marie remained in Alabama, beginning her life as a military wife. While she eagerly awaited for Frank to come home on leave, she picked up odd jobs here and there and discovered she had a talent for secretarial work. She was fast, efficient, and reliable. And more importantly, her male co-workers loved her. But not everyone was sold. Marie had a problem staying friends with other women. She frequently got into disagreements or just seemed to rub them the wrong way. And because she was always the newcomer, she didn't have many allies. Inevitably, it led to an uncomfortable working environment, and Marie was usually asked to leave, or she left of her own accord. Perhaps that was only for the best. Less time in an office meant more time and freedom to see her husband. In 1952, Frank was reassigned to the Boston Navy Yard. At some point, 19-year-old Marie made a trip north to see him, which is probably what led to this next thing. Marie was pregnant. When he heard the news, Frank was ecstatic and moved back to Anniston to get a job at a local factory. After two years of long distance, Marie and Frank were finally under the same roof with a baby on the way. From the outside looking in, the Hillies were living the American dream. But there were issues threatening to bubble to the surface. For starters, Marie liked to shop. Despite their meager income, she insisted on buying the most expensive designer clothes she could find and refused to purchase anything on sale. She also liked cars, always coveting the newest one on the lot. When it came to houses, she wanted the best one on the block, too. The small fixer-upper she and Frank moved into just wasn't going to cut it. Sometime during her pregnancy, Marie decided they needed to remodel. Her friends thought that was absurd. The Hillies weren't that rich. But managing finances was the last thing on Marie's mind, so she went ahead and spent an exorbitant amount on her dream remodel, determined to have what she wanted. Frank longed to make his pregnant wife happy, but the fact of the matter was, Marie would never be satisfied. He could give her a million dollars and she'd still say she needed more. Needless to say, this strained their marriage. Unhappy with his home life, Frank began drinking at the local Elks Club. It started as a beer or two after work and quickly became a regular escape. It seemed that the Hillies' perfect life was slipping away. But then in 1953, the couple was granted a temporary reprieve when Marie gave birth to their son, Mike. She still spent too much money and he still drank at the club, but otherwise things seemed steady. Besides, Marie was too busy focusing on raising her son for the next few years. But that distraction would only last for so long. One night in 1960, 27-year-old Marie drove to the Elks Club with 7-year-old Mike in tow. They were going to meet Frank there for dinner. But when they arrived, Marie was horrified to see that her husband was, well, wasted. She tried to keep her cool, but Frank's drunken state was just embarrassing. People in Anniston talked, and she hated that he was making her look like a fool. Upset, she stormed off to get the car to take them all home. Meanwhile, a very inebriated Frank waited with Mike at the curb outside the club. 
Frank tried his best to keep it together, but he'd had too much to drink. He ran towards some bushes and began vomiting. When he finally looked up, he could see Marie approaching them in her vehicle. In that moment, it seems Frank was overcome with emotions. He knew his wife resented him, and he desperately wanted out of his miserable life. All of a sudden, he laid down on the pavement, right in Marie's path. Then he shouted, Come on, run me over, put me out of my misery. For a second, Marie thought about speeding up. In a few seconds, she could end both of their unhappiness. And so she pressed down ever so slightly on the gas pedal. Right at that moment, a man left the clubhouse and saw the strange scene. Whether or not he understood what was really happening, he could see that Frank was in danger. Quick as a flash, he pulled him to the sidewalk next to Mike. Seeing this, Marie slowed down, came to a stop, and assumed the facade of the perfect housewife. But she knew what she'd done. She'd made her choice in that moment. And after that, nothing would ever be the same. Up next, Marie's dissatisfaction turns deadly. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1960, 27-year-old Audrey Marie Hilly and 29-year-old Frank Hilly had both soured on their marriage. She was spending too much, he was drinking too much, and their seven-year-old son Mike was caught in the middle. Following the Elks Club incident, where Marie almost ran Frank over, the couple began arguing in public. They'd spent years trying to keep up appearances, but seemed uninterested in hiding the truth anymore. They were miserable. The situation only got worse when Marie found out she was pregnant. Only this time, it wasn't anything to celebrate. Frankly, Marie didn't want another kid. Her life was already unraveling before her, and she felt like a loser. But when her daughter Carol was born later that year, it seems Marie had a revelation. She could transfer all of her unfulfilled hopes and dreams onto Carol. Unsurprisingly, this wasn't exactly a healthy idea. 
According to a 2013 study published in the PLOS One journal, parents who see their children as extensions of themselves rather than as unique individuals are experiencing a phenomenon called enmeshment. What's more, this particular group of parents sometimes desire their child to become successful in precisely those domains in which they have failed themselves. A mom, for example, might live vicariously through her daughter because it offers her a sense of purpose. But there are serious downsides for the child. Under the pressure of their parents' high expectations, they can often struggle to establish their own identity. As she grew up, Marie controlled every aspect of Carol's life, dictating everything from what her daughter wore to who she hung out with. While this sounds awful enough, it wasn't always so bad. After all, Marie gave Carol the best that money could buy, the nicest clothes, the biggest car, and the best opportunities. Of course, her actions weren't born of traditional motherly love. Marie saw her daughter as a second chance to redo her own life. If she couldn't be the queen bee forever, maybe Carol could. But as Carol got older, she began to despise her mother's behavior. The more Marie tried to mold her in her own image, the more the girl rebelled. At some point, she started standing up to her mother and told her that she preferred to go fishing and golfing with her father than shop for dresses. Fortunately, Marie still had the love and support of her son. But in 1972, that all changed. 19-year-old Mike announced he was moving out. He was a sophomore in college now, and it was time to get his own place. Marie was devastated. With Mike gone, she felt like an outsider again and feared that no one really cared about her. Marie stewed over the issues in her life and came to the conclusion that Frank was the real problem. He'd promised her a happily ever after. Instead, he left her for drunken nights at the bar, kept their daughter away from her, and had done nothing to stop their son from leaving the nest. It was unacceptable. Marie knew she had to do something to get things back on track. Exactly what gave Marie the idea for what she did next, we'll never know. But it's possible that she was inspired by a bottle of rat poison. Maybe she stumbled upon it in her basement, or perhaps it caught her eye at the store. But it seems the label sparked the darkest corners of her imagination. She was going to poison her husband. According to the FBI database, poison isn't a common killing method. When it is used, women are way more likely to use it than men, perhaps because it evens the playing field physically. But even amongst female killers, it takes a specific type of person to commit the deed. Clinical psychologist Joni Johnston explains that poisoning requires careful planning and subterfuge, so poisoners tend to be cunning, sneaky, and creative. In other words, only someone who thinks they'll get away with it is going to poison. Marie certainly thought she could pull it off. Besides, it wasn't like she was trying to kill Frank. She just wanted to keep him meek and under her control. That way, he'd start behaving, Carol would be nicer, and Mike would come back home. 
So in the early 1970s, Marie started lacing Frank's food with arsenic. She made sure to give him enough to keep him under the weather, but not enough to raise any alarms. During this time, Frank complained of on and off fevers and stomach problems. He was sure that something was wrong, but not even his doctor could make sense of it. His health got so bad that he struggled to manage on his own and started leaning on Marie for help. She happily assumed the role of doting wife, relishing the feeling that she was needed again. The problem was that if Frank got better, Marie knew she'd be right back where she started, feeling completely alone and unloved. To maintain her position, she had to keep Frank in his sickly state. One day, Frank laid in bed, moaning in pain. His whole body felt like it was on fire. He wanted medicine, anything to make him feel better. Marie saw her opportunity and pounced. She sat down on the side of the bed and told Frank that she could give him an injection to ease the aches. She lied and said the doctor had given his approval. If Frank had been more lucid, he might've thought it was a little strange. As it was, he saw no reason not to trust Marie. She was the mother of his children, and they'd been together for decades. So he let Marie administer the shot, then sighed in relief, hopeful that the medicine might help. Of course, he had no idea that Marie was only making things worse. She'd injected him with even more arsenic. This slow, awful process went on for about a year or two. For a while, keeping Frank sick and under her control was enough to satisfy Marie. What she didn't anticipate was that the bills would keep piling up. Between the doctor appointments and Frank's inability to work, Marie was left to carry the finances on her own. So in 1974, she got a new job as a secretary. Her boss, Walter Clinton, was a handsome, middle-aged businessman. From the very start, Marie felt an irresistible attraction to him. Walter felt it too, and they began an affair. Things went great for a while, until one day when Frank came home unexpectedly early. As usual, he was feeling nauseous and needed to lie down. When he opened his bedroom door, he was shocked at what he saw, his wife in bed with another man. Frank stood there for a moment and then, without saying a word, turned around and walked out. After that, Marie and Walter ended things. As for Frank, we don't know what kind of conversations he and Marie had once he returned, but we can speculate how Marie felt. She didn't love her husband, her affair was over, and she was drowning in debt. She needed a lifeboat, fast. Luckily for her, Frank had a life insurance policy. Like some other desperate, unhappy spouses we've discussed over the years, Marie decided her husband was more useful to her if he was dead. A fat insurance payout would solve all of her problems. All she had to do was increase the arsenic doses. Later that May, Frank was supposed to play a round of golf with his 22-year-old son. 
The night before, Marie called Mike and canceled the outing. She told him that Frank was vomiting and suffering from diarrhea. By now, Mike was aware of Frank's perplexing illness, so he wasn't surprised by the news. He wished his father a quick recovery and looked forward to rescheduling the round. Two days later, Frank went to see Dr. Earl Jones, but the doctor wasn't too concerned. He thought Frank probably just had a stomach bug. He prescribed some medication and sent him on his way. Four days later, Marie brought Frank back to the hospital. She claimed she'd found him wandering outside in the middle of the night, confused and unaware of his surroundings. This is where Marie's motivations start to get confusing. You'd think that she'd want to keep Frank at home and let the poison do its thing, but instead she asked for help. It's possible it was all getting to be too much for her. Maybe she was having doubts about going through with the murder. Some might say that perhaps she took Frank to the hospital because she wanted to get caught. Fort Wayne psychologist Stephen Ross dismisses that idea. His research shows that the idea that criminals want to get caught is largely false. In reality, he says, they're acting out of super-optimism, the idea that they're untouchable. Criminal defense attorney Kenneth Padowitz further explains that criminals often consider themselves unique and superior to everyone. That self-centeredness allows them to commit crimes and truly believe they'll get away with it. From birth, Marie seemed to have always gotten her way. She had no reason to believe it would be any different this time. So instead of shying away from people talking about her husband's situation, she leaned into it. There was no way she would get caught. At the hospital, Frank was diagnosed with hepatitis, or inflammation of the liver. It was a serious condition, but not life-threatening. Now that they had decided what was wrong, the doctors were hopeful about their treatment plan. Unfortunately, it was a misdiagnosis. The symptoms of hepatitis can look very similar to arsenic poisoning, so it was an easy mistake to make, but a fatal one. While the physicians treated Frank for a disease he didn't have, his body deteriorated. His skin turned a sickly yellow and his muscles weakened until he could barely stand. He alternated between moments of clarity and completely forgetting who or where he was. Marie eventually called their son Mike and told him that this might be the end. Mike raced to the hospital from his home in Florida to be with his dad. Over the next 48 hours, Mike rarely left his father's side, but on May 25th, he had to go and pick up his grandmothers. They, too, wanted to say their goodbyes. But when the trio returned, 45-year-old Frank was dead. According to Marie, she was asleep when it happened. Then again, maybe she injected him with one final lethal dose while no one was around. We'll never be entirely sure. What we do know is that two days after Frank was buried, Marie filed a claim for his life insurance. Soon after that, her bank account was much, much healthier. And just like that, things were looking up. All it had taken was a little murder. Up next, Marie strikes again. Now back to the story. In 1975, 
42-year-old Audrey Marie Hilly orchestrated the death of her 45-year-old husband, Frank Hilly. Then, while his friends and family mourned the loss, Marie enjoyed the profits of her work. It was a good chunk of change. Frank's life insurance amounted to $30,000. Today, that's equivalent to about $150,000. Not enough to retire on, but still, if she spent it wisely, she could really make it last. Of course, Marie had never been careful with money. After paying off a few outstanding loans, she began adding to her monthly bills. She bought a new car and ran up tabs at local stores, buying everything from furniture to expensive jewelry. A few people, including her son, 22-year-old Mike, raised their eyebrows. Mike was particularly worried because with Frank gone, there was no breadwinner. That left Marie to shoulder all of the household and financial burdens. Not only did she have to care for her 15-year-old daughter, Carol, she also had to look after her own mother, 62-year-old Lucille. It was a lot for one person, especially one who'd experienced such a devastating loss. Ever the dutiful son, Mike wanted to make sure his mother was okay, so he decided to move back to Alabama with his wife, Terry. It goes without saying, Marie was thrilled by this development. Things were working out even better than she expected. Wanting to keep everyone close to her, she invited Mike and Terry to move into the house with her, Lucille, and Carol. But what seemed like a great idea soon backfired. There were simply too many conflicting personalities under one roof. Mike was an adult now, and he didn't feel beholden to Marie's rules. Of course, Marie didn't like that. She felt her son should be more grateful. Over time, the tension between them grew. Once again, Marie felt like she was losing her grip over her family. And not feeling terribly creative, she resorted to the same tactics as before. Only now, she turned her focus on her daughter-in-law. Terry had never been seriously ill in her life. Then suddenly, while living with Marie, she ended up in the hospital on four different occasions. And just like with Frank, doctors couldn't work out what was wrong. Knowing what we do, there's certainly a strong possibility that Marie was to blame for Terry's condition. Unfortunately, we can't say for certain. In any case, no one suspected Marie of anything. Still, Mike and Terry eventually figured it was time to find their own place, get out from under Marie's feet. But instead of being pleased to have more space at home, Marie was upset. That wasn't part of her plan. No matter how tense things were, she wanted all of her family with her, under her rule. So once Mike and Terry signed the lease on their new apartment, Marie devised a scheme to reunite everyone back under one roof. Again, we can't be sure exactly what happened, so this next part of the story involves some guesswork. But it seems that while everyone was gone one night, Marie started a small fire in her home. Before it could take off, she took her mother for a drive. Marie and Lucille returned a little while later to find smoke billowing from the windows. Someone had called the fire department who were about to storm the place. 
When the flames subsided, Marie acted completely stunned. She seemed to have no idea how the fire could have started. The police weren't able to figure out the cause either. But the upshot was the same. Because of all the smoke damage, the house was unlivable for a while. So Marie, Lucille, and Carol all squeezed into Mike and Terry's place. A month later, once the smoke had been cleared from her home, there was another fire. This time, it was in the apartment next door to Mike and Terry. Just like before, smoke had made the home unlivable, so Mike and Terry had no choice but to ask Marie for a place to stay. To be clear, we don't know for sure that Marie was the one who started the fires, but given the circumstances, it's highly probable. Interestingly, most serial arsonists are men. To explain why Marie might have been setting so many places aflame, we have to look to other key indicators. According to a study by the Department of Justice, stress can be a major factor. Out of 100 serial arsonists, 23% pointed to emotional problems that were causing them trouble. Another 18% pointed to financial difficulties. Marie was incredibly affected by the drama with her family, not to mention she was under financial duress. Both of these things could have accounted for her compulsive need to set fires. It might have given her a sense of control when she felt she had none. Unfortunately for Marie, things took a turn for the worse in early 1977. Her 63-year-old mother, Lucille, died from cancer. The unexpected death sent 43-year-old Marie into another tailspin, during which she displayed some bizarre behavior. Throughout that spring, she concocted various fake emergencies that she reported to the police. She made up burglaries, harassing calls, and gas leaks. Her motives for the antics aren't totally clear, but it's likely she was trying to get attention. Marie wanted to keep her family close and focused on her, so she played the role of the victim. That way, no one would leave her. But Marie was grasping at straws. She'd killed her husband, lost her mother, and pushed her son away. At this point, 17-year-old Carol was the only one she had left. So Marie threw all her focus at her daughter. And just like the old days, she spoiled Carol rotten. But like before, it came with a price. She wanted the power to dictate her life. But Carol wouldn't stand for that. She started coming home late, long after curfew, picked up smoking, and openly defied her mother's orders. But as much as Carol rebelled, there were still times when she needed her mother. For example, in 1978, the teen crashed her car. She confessed to Marie, scared of getting into trouble and unsure of what to do. But Marie told Carol not to worry. Mommy would take care of it. Marie drove the car to a remote area, shoved a rag in the gas tank, and set the whole thing on fire. The vehicle burned to a crisp. Afterwards, Marie collected the insurance on the vehicle, making money from the impromptu scheme. Here we can see that Marie was establishing a pattern. Whatever issues arose, insurance payouts seemed to be the answer. And money, or the lack of it, always seemed to be a problem. 
But for Marie, that was just the tip of the iceberg. When she stood back and really evaluated her life, she felt like a failure. She was still your regular middle-aged woman living in Alabama, more alone than ever. She needed to shake things up. Of course, for Marie, there was only one way to make that happen. Later that summer, 45-year-old Marie took out another life insurance policy for $25,000. And it was for her daughter, Carol. While Marie waited for the coverage to go into effect, she looked for other ways to fix her worsening financial situation. She reached out to Mike until he eventually cut her off. Then she wrote to old flings, trying to seduce them into giving her cash. When those avenues dried up, Marie started poisoning her daughter with arsenic-laced food. In April of 1979, 19-year-old Carol began experiencing the same symptoms as her father had years earlier. For the next four months, she was in and out of emergency rooms. One day in August, Marie showed up at Carol's bedside. She told her daughter she had a medicine that could help. She just had to promise not to tell anyone. Marie told her that a nurse friend had slipped her the drugs and she'd be fired if anyone knew. Desperate to feel better, Carol agreed. After checking that no one was watching, Marie gave Carol a shot of arsenic. Soon after that, Carol's fingers went numb and she could barely stand. The doctors were stumped. Unable to find another explanation, they decided that Carol's problem might be psychosomatic. In other words, they thought it was all in her head. So Marie did as they instructed and checked Carol into the psychiatric wing of Carroway Methodist Hospital. And she was there every day overseeing Carol's treatment. She couldn't let her daughter out of her sight for too long. Otherwise, she might actually get better. When Marie wasn't by her daughter's side, she was busy spending what little money she had left. She'd make purchases at local stores on bad credit. Then she'd go and take out loans at different companies with no intention of paying the money back. She just kept digging herself deeper. When the insurance company billed her for Carol's hospital stay, Marie wrote them a check and sent it in. She knew it would bounce, but it didn't matter. She had operated for so long without any consequences. Besides, she figured she'd have money to pay her bills soon enough. She just had to wait for Carol to die. However, by now, Marie's odd behavior was starting to raise suspicions in the Hilly family. Frank's mother, Carrie, had never accepted the way her son died. She remembered Marie giving Frank strange injections, and she voiced her theories to Mike. At first, he waved them off. That was his mother they were talking about, and no matter what troubles his parents might have had, he was sure Marie wouldn't have poisoned Frank. Still, the seed of doubt was planted, and Mike couldn't shake the allegation. Then he heard that Marie was giving Carol shots, and suddenly everything felt way too real. Back at the hospital, Marie continued to play the role of concerned mother. That September, she asked Carol's new doctor what he thought was wrong with her. 
he told her he suspected poison might be the cause. Marie panicked. It was the first time anyone had ever said that out loud. She knew she couldn't let them test that theory. So that very same day, she moved Carol to the University of Alabama hospital. Marie figured she'd escaped just in time, but the walls were closing in around her even if she couldn't see it yet. The following day, Mike gave his sister's new hospital a call. He knew it sounded insane, but he told them that there was a possibility that Carol had been poisoned. Dr. Brian Thompson heard him out and promised to look into it. But before Dr. Thompson could run any tests, two uniformed officers showed up looking for Marie. They found her in Carol's room and pulled her out into the hallway. For a few heart-stopping seconds, Marie thought she'd finally, inexplicably, been found out. But the cops told her the insurance company had filed a complaint. She'd been signing bad checks, they said, and arrested her on the spot. Marie couldn't be more relieved. She knew she could finagle her way out of fraud charges, so long as she was given the chance to explain herself. But the authorities were about to learn that Marie was responsible for so much more than just a few bad checks, and it was going to be much harder to talk her way out of this trouble. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, when the full extent of Marie's crimes finally catch up with her. For more information on Audrey Marie Hilly, amongst the many sources we used, we found Poisoned Blood by Philip E. Ginsburg, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.